Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. This week's guest is Judith Anderley, who, along with her husband, Michael, has built an indie publishing empire and created the 20 Books to 50K Annual Conference. I'm very happy to have her as a guest, as we will be discussing a topic not covered before in the three years of this podcast— Publishing Contracts and Publishing Rights. Welcome, Judith. Oh, thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So, um, like I said, I've not touched upon this subject, although there's been a lot of interest in it, you know, and there's a lot of horror stories connected with it. So, <laughs> this would be kind of like a, a publishing 101 type overview of, um, of publishing contracts and rights. So, when I did the interview with, with Michael, your husband, uh, he mm -hmm. deferred discussion of anything contractual and rights related to you. He said, no, that, that's Judith here. So, um, so your team, you've got the 20 books to 50K, and you also have the LMBPN uh, Disruptive Imagination uh, Publishing House. How'd that come to be, and how did you divvy up your, your responsibilities? Yeah, well, thank you for asking. First of all, um, just a quick background on myself so that the audience gets a feel for why me, right? Um, yeah. I was I was born in Central America, but grew up in Hollywood, California. I went to Hollywood High down the street from all of you guys. And um, a, yeah, block away from me. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I would walk up and down. Uh, you know, go to lunch and hide and everything. So, um, and uh, throughout my aspirations and growing up, I always wanted to work in international business. So that was always my goal, either that or pediatrician, but I didn't have the vocation or the actually the discipline for the studies. And so I went into international business. And so all of my career has been towards the global side of any business, mainly in the medical device pharma world. And throughout my um, working life, I also at night would go to night school. And so I earned uh, my undergraduate degree. I also have an MBA in marketing and a JD at law. And so all of that combined uh, really provided for uh, an opportunity when after 20 plus years in the medical device pharma world, I was working with Novartis doing really well. Um, I was searching for something else. And so Mike had already started the publishing company and, and you know, it was growing hockey sticking and he needed uh, help. So he asked that I join the company. And after what he likes to say about a year of courting his wife to join the company, <laughs> I, I finally acquiesced and joined the company. And since then, I can tell you that uh, with all of my degrees and all of the education, the legal side of it and everything that I know has been through really working with LMBPN. So a lot of the conversation that you and I are going to have right now answers any questions comes from that experience and uh, and and you know I wouldn't my education wouldn't be worth anything if I didn't put out a disclaimer that this conversation is obviously it's not meant to replace any legal advice uh, anybody seeking legal advice really should speak to their own counsel so this is just information only and again it's first-hand experience not, nece not necessarily from legal standard or you know or the law itself right okay well thank you for that and um, so with with that preamble Yes. The uh, yes. So then, like I said, you're a team. So so Michael brought you. He he brought you into the company or invited you into the company. So at that point, it was already LMBPN when you started. Yes. Or so did when you become LMBPN when you? Because he said he talked about how he was doing it because it was fashion. That was like your your head of bent going in the direction towards fashion, which obviously isn't what resulted, except for in his principal character in uh, the Cartherian Gambit, you know, where fashion played a role. So now I understand where that came from, yes. but otherwise. <laughs> so, so um, backtrack a little bit. I was uh, in, in my career working internationally. I always traveled. And so I would be out of the house um, traveling at different trade shows and Mike would stay home with the kids, with the boys. And so, um, you know, he had a successful marketing company, digital marketing, because that's his experience. He's got IT technical background. Um, but in my absence, he also then would have time, spare time to think about what else he wanted to do. And so he took out, I believe, uh, dusted out an old uh, transcript that he had and he started working on it. And so um, by the time I found out that he was publishing, he had already published three books. And uh, during that time, uh, I also was looking for something else fun to do. And so um, I set up a little styling website. It was called LN. VPN, which was really for the fashion industries and capitals of the world, uh, London, Barcelona, Madrid, New York, and Paris. And so, um, you know, put the letters as an acronym. Uh, come to find out, he took those letters and then he implemented them into the publishing company. And when he and I started 
talking about it, uh, given my marketing background, we started talking about the logo design, what the company really meant, and uh, what would be easier for people to remember. And so that's where the transposing of the letters came on an alphabetical order. But more importantly, um, it was the, the logo and the disruptive imagination really speaks just to the aspiration of the company of being global, uh, being at the forefront, in particular, in this case, at the publishing company. And uh, since I joined the company, then I started taking uh, my experience in marketing and setting up the brand equity, because at that time it was Michael Anderley, the author, but mm -hmm. LNBPN, you know, was kind of like a, a, in the background. And so we decided strategically to focus on the company itself and develop the company brand so then other people would um, either be interested in reading about it or also, you know, it, it turns out collaborators wanting to join the company. And then afterwards, we uh, we would pivot and then focus on Michael Anderley, the author. And so since then, we've been uh, fortunate enough to be able to establish the brand and it's become and well known in the, in the community as to what it relays, which is really a disruption of the process, the way things are done, right? Um, because in the beginning, Mike was told, and I'm sure he told you during his um, his uh, discussion with you that he was told that the way he was doing it wasn't right and that vampires don't go to outer space and blah, blah, blah. And so everything that he was told he couldn't do, he's done and has become successful at it. And so that's why we felt that at the ethos and at the core, other than giving back and in addition to giving back, uh, being disruptive, not just for disruptive sake, but to innovate was really at the core of who we were. And that's where LMBPN came about, uh, London, Madrid, Barcelona, Paris, New York, and with disruptive imagination at the core of everything that we do. Wow, that's amazing. So then he's obviously got creative. Are you also on the creative side of, of writing or you, you handle the, the legal and the corporate aspect of it? Yeah, you know, the create, I, I am creative per se, I guess, I don't mean to invalidate like, yeah. like that. No. Yeah, no, no, no. But, uh, you know, to preface it, to say that uh, it, my creative nature ends at uh, being a visual person. So I watch a lot of movies, uh, TV shows, and I love fashion, but that's the end of it. Uh, when it comes to writing itself, I just don't, do not have a creative bone. Although, you know, I can, I can when I read some of the stories, obviously, um, follow through, I'm able to, I guess, be able to tell what really resonates as a reader. But other than that, uh, that's the extent of it. He did try, by the way, I don't know if he remembers, he, he did try to get me to think that I was going to be an author and I shot him down. I said, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> we didn't talk about that, but we did talk about your, your, the exercise of you asking what shoes does he like? Oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, that, so, so, okay. So what was happening again, I didn't know until the third book that he was publishing. Um, I, I was home one night and I see him and I look at him and, and uh, we were in bed, you know, I was watching a TV show and I see him typing away and just typing and typing. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, oh, you know, I'm just writing my book. And I thought, your book, what do you mean? And so then he starts explaining it. So I said, oh, that's nice. And so then he would ask me different questions, but I really didn't delve into why. And he would ask me, what would somebody wear, you know, if they were doing whatever? And I said, oh, you know, and I would talk about Hermes and, and you know, the different bags that they have. And then I would talk about the Kelly bag. I would talk about the Louboutin shoes just because that was my love of fashion, but never putting the two and two together. Uh, and afterwards, at one time, I read one of his books and I read that he, um, his character had, I think it was uh, a particular brand of purse with a particular brand of shoes that would never go together for various <laughs> reasons. <laughs> and uh, I said, had you told me, I would have explained to you better. But yes, he would ask me a lot of very, I remember once he said, uh, so Central America, yes. How do you get to Panama if you're like in, you know, whatever? I said, oh, and then I start delineating, you know, how you would get there. Well, one of his books talks about his character and how she got from point A to point B. And that's when I realized he was asking a lot of questions, but I never put the two and two together until afterwards. Yeah, no, it's, they're very fun stories, as you no doubt have yeah. come to realize. <laughs> yes. yes. So on the subject then of, of rights and contracts, there's a lot, there's horror stories connected with it, and there's people that want to get started, and they feel like, okay, I've just a handshake is all you need, um, mm -hmm. which, you, which you rapidly disabused, uh, Michael Love. Um, <laughs> but um, in terms of like the, the basics of how to get started in, in rights and contracts, what are some, some basic do's? Then we'll get into some of the don'ts and, and pitfalls and stuff. 
Sure. I think, you know, it, and it's understandably so. Contracts can be, if you just think about them in the abstract, right? It's like that elephant over there. Who wants to take on the elephant? But like anything else, taking on the elephant, it takes, you know, one bite at a time. So if you look at contracts as rather than like this big, scary thing and, and whoever's on the other side of the contract, somebody who's trying to cheat you out of something, if you get that mentality of your head, I think uh, you'll be better off, in particular, uh, authors that are starting out, because there are horror stories. And, um, you know, I want to believe in the good nature of, of human beings, right? And so if you think about, okay, assuming that no one starts off at a bad place, and by the way, contract law requires that contracts be entered into in good faith. That's a tenement of law. And so um, so assuming everybody's coming into into the agreement in good faith, the basic things that I think you got to remember if you're starting out is nobody's going to protect your baby, your book, like yourself. So you could hire an attorney or you could hire an agent and, and, and they're all well-intended, but they also have other clients and other things going on and other priorities. So to you, that priority and that baby is yours. So nobody can protect it like you. So when when the contract is, is uh, presented to you and offer comes your way, first of all, it's great. Be excited about it. And there's just look for a couple of basic things. And, and in contract law and in law school, they teach you um, different um, acronyms to remember because there's so much to remember. But the basic one in, in contract law is Q-tips when it comes to goods, which books can be. Um, you know, and, and Q-tips stands for Q for quantity. So you look in the contract and you see what are they trying to contract? Is it one book? Is it the whole series? If so, how many books are in a series? Or if you as the author only have two books, but you're thinking of planning out five, so think about these things when you're looking at the contract. What do you want to uh, contract for the quantity? Uh, time of performance, how long is the contract for? Is it for two, three, five years, 10 years? I've heard of contracts being that long. Um, so you look at the time and what you're comfortable with entering. Uh, you look at the identities of the parties. Sometimes in contracts, um, people forget uh, that their name, John Smith, but their pen name is such and such. And they also have a company that's named something else. And so all of those identities really should come into the contract for various reasons that could benefit you. Likewise, the other party that you're entering into a contract with, find out all of their identities because it's important that the identities of the party be described. Um, then the price, uh, P for price. Uh, you know, what, what's, what are they offering you and when and how are they going to pay you? Is it a one-time advance amount? Is it royalties over time? Um, I know that in contracts in particular overseas, there are scales, whether the book is physical because of the pricing versus digital. So all of these things are things that you just look at and, um, and make sure that they're spelled out in the agreement that you're entering into. And lastly, S under the Q-TIPS acronym for subject matter is, uh, you know, what is the overall thing that you're contracting? Is it just the book? Is it the ebook? Is it the ebook and the physical book? Is it the audiobook? Is it eventually derivatives, you know, uh, such as movies, um, merchandising? So, just what is the contract speaking about? And um, I hope not to overwhelm anybody, but if you just keep these basic Q tips items in mind, I think overall uh, you, you would do well in making sure that you understand what is being offered to you for your book. And then obviously you would have attorneys or agents or anybody else helping you to expand it. Okay. So that's a good initial uh, starting volley there of uh, things to look yeah. at then. So Q-tips is, is like the key basics. Um, yes. So there's some common misconceptions, which you touched upon a little bit on, on negotiating or getting a contract. And so I guess if you've heard nothing but horror stories to begin with or heard horror stories that scare you away, then you're going to be having your forefront of your mind, the misconception and just anticipating whoever you work with is going to try to rip you off. Right. And that's not a correct way to approach it. But what's a way to, to go? Well, first of all, common misconceptions you've run into, because we'll the, the 20 bucks to 50K, which is, I think, mostly the business side of, of writing that, right. that you address there. So what are some common questions you get on that are just mostly the misconceptions on publishing contracts? I think one of the main ones that, uh, that we've learned actually ourselves through, through the business side is there's a difference between copyright ownership and the revenue share that you get and the potential for revenue. And sometimes authors think that it's the same thing and it's not. And so I've heard people tell me, well, I'm not giving up my copyright and so I'm not entering into a contract. And I'm thinking, okay, well, what was the revenue share that they were offering you? Because if you're being offered... A, 
in particular if it's a nice amount, right, depending on, on how you value it. Um, are you going to pass up on an opportunity uh, because, you know, you're saying I want the copyright and maintain the copyright? Or are you willing to think about copyright as separate from revenue, in which case you can always look at the copyright, which means the ownership of the content itself and see if you can negotiate uh, the, the rights that the individual buying would have versus the rights that you keep. And then you think about the revenue side being perpetual. You know, how much am I going to get over the life of the item? So sometimes it's convoluted. So copyright does not necessarily mean the revenue percentage that you're going to get or the length of the revenue itself. Right. So now with, with the intellectual property, with the IP itself, then you've got the contract for the copyright, but you've also got the copyright, the rights for, like you said, the print book. You've got, you can even break print down into hardcover, trade paperback, and mass market. There's also the audiobook, there's the ebook. So is it common that each one will be its own contract? Or is it com more common that they're just, you're going to have your, your print and your ebook and all the three formats of print? And then the ebook is one contract and the audiobook is another contract because there's a lot of times it's farmed out, it's somebody else that does that. So ideally, it would be best to spell out how you want those, those um, rights attributed to you in one contract. Uh, yes, you could have separate contracts, one for audio, one for film, but, but frankly, I think, um, and again, this is only speaking from experience and, and you know, I'm looking at the publishing side. Um, mm -hmm. It's just from a, a, a matter of expediency and um, long term, I think it would be ideal to have it in one agreement. Now, if the concern that as an author that you have is that you really, there's so many unknowns, you could stipulate that um, con that the audio rights can be discussed, you know, when an, uh, an opportunity of the production begins, for example. So you could always stipulate in the same agreement that although you're willing to discuss the audio rights, they don't necessarily apply at this one point. You can have an amendment later on. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily become, again, separate individual agreements. Amendments unto themselves are just a part of the main agreement. Um, right. So, yeah, you know, but going back to, I think, the initial mistake and um, and I've made this mistake, you know, I'll give an example. We had an offer for um, for derivatives for one of Michael's series, which was really outstanding, great series, doing really well. And I thought, oh, this is too little. This amount is just too small and um, without really thinking it through. And so I passed up on the opportunity. I, I'll tell you, a year and a half now, I'm still talking to you about it because now I look back and I think, why didn't I take it, right? Because this was before, you know, everything in the world went up in the air. And so I'm thinking I could have had, the company could have had revenue, which would have been great uh, of the amount they were offering. And the production wasn't going to begin until this year anyway. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so, so sometimes you get caught up uh, with... Uh, the promise that's out there and you want to protect this huge promise when it doesn't really exist right now. So I think a little more pragmatic uh, thinking would be better. So back to your initial question, uh, it would be ideal to have all of the derivatives spelled out in the one agreement, even if there's certain things that you're not committing to right now. Okay. Now what about uh, foreign publishing? So you've got, you got the United States or, or English rights. So the way the rights work then, so you've got either English it also depends, I guess, which publisher you're going with, if you're going with a publisher or if you're just going with um, KDP or however you're going or if you're going through yourself. Mm -hmm. So when you, because you publish a lot, because I've, I've learned by going through your website that you, you publish a couple hundred books a year. Mm -hmm. in, in other languages, you mean? Well, right now I'm talking about English, mm -hmm. but then to be publishing them in, in UK or in India or in Australia or in South Africa, so you got the English version, and then we're gonna. Then I'll talk about translation. So now you've got a, a book, you've got it in, in English, and you want to, and you want to get it out there. So, of course, you're gonna get it in the United States, and probably Canada is just also very easy to uh, to add on to that. But what about the other countries? Is that is that the same publisher that would do that, or some somebody look for another publisher, or is that just something about uh, on that? Because it's it's not just English equals English, because you got right. English different countries. Well, English is the same, right, irrespective. I think the question relates to the ge geographical component. Correct. Okay. Of the English translation, yeah. Right, of the, the, of the, of the original, right. That, you know, right. I, I haven't heard of a case. I, I, in Spanish, there's a different conversation because in Spanish, there's Castilian Spanish, and then there's Latin American Spanish. So, so right. there, there you could have 
I don't know why you would, but you could potentially have two variations, but in English, it's only one. Uh, you know, so whether you're indie, uh, so if you're in, in the, uh, independent and you're putting your book out to the world and you're putting it through Amazon, for example, it's digital, so it goes everywhere where Amazon goes. Um, right. And so there's no really, there's no discussion as to any other um, legal entity coming in or any agreement coming in. If you're going through a publishing house, I believe the publishing houses should have in their agreements that they're you're licensing the rights and so that they could distribute it all around the world, and in which case they would distribute it. And all it would take is, um, and again, it sounds easy for us because we do it, but I don't want to minimize the process, but just, you know, there's distributors around the world that are just as big or bigger than Amazon who normally contracts with either Amazon or if you're in the, in the yourself, and uh, you can have your books distributed in other countries through these distributors. As a one-person show, or frankly, even for us, it's easier for us to keep it uh, Amazon exclusive. And again, I don't, you know, there's a whole conversation as to exclusive, non-exclusive, right. and all that. But just in general, for us, it's easier to keep it in one portal, even though we know that outside of the U.S., Amazon is not the largest uh, entity to distribute books. But for us, it's just easier. We're just starting now in Germany and in France to go through a distribution house for our physical books and they're distributing the books, but they're just distributors. So they don't own any rights, uh, any, any of the copyright or intellectual property. Uh, they're just distributing the books for you. And so um, you can maintain your intellectual property rights and have distribution outside of the U.S. through these distribution homes if you were doing it independently or if you're going through a major publisher, the publisher would have probably in the contract already stipulated that they will have the book distributed in, in other parts of the world. Okay. So now, so I got it on that, and that obviously it's very easy if you just decide, okay, I'm, I'm Amazon only, then that's one signature fits all. Mm -hmm. Correct. So now when you want to go out and then into other languages, if you want to do something in, um, well, you're just there in, in UAE, I'm assuming that's also to be able to publish it in a translated format. Is that going to be... English distribution throughout the UAE. It, it is right now because Amazon's there. Uh, so I believe they just entered uh, last year. And so we know our books are being distributed, distributed, excuse me, in English yeah. in the UAE and wherever Amazon is present. Long term, we are looking at opportunities to both translate into Arabic and then have uh, authors who are local authors who have great stories, by the way, because as mm -hmm. you know, the part of the region has ancient history that we can't even come close to because we're newbies, right? We're a young yeah. country in comparison. And so um, and so taking opportunity of, of those stories that have magical components where a sci-fi company are something that is in, of interest of us. So um, thinking about having the rights and acquiring the rights to publish um, other authors into English is something that we're looking at, but from a contractual standpoint, it would it would be your typical publishing agreement discussing about the language components. Um, when it comes to translations, it's a completely different story. But as far as just the distribution of the books themselves, um, it's pretty straightforward to where the platform distributes the books. I believe Ingram, as a matter of fact, Ingram entered into an agreement with the Sharjah Publishing um, Company. Uh, publishing office and so um excuse me publishing city still getting mm -hmm. used to all the names and um where the physical books will be distributed as well from some of the companies that are that are up to now available through ebook i get so now for someone who's he's got his he's got his book and he's he's seen to the the publication in english but now he wants to be able to also sell because it it's been successful mm -hmm. and how would he go about now? I want to. I want to also have it in Spanish. I want to have it in French. I want to have it in Italian, Portuguese, what other other language? How would they go about that? So it depends on how much heavy lifting he or she wants to do, right? Uh, just like in the beginning of the first book, do you want to be indie or do you want to have a publishing company take over? There's benefits and, and negatives to both. Uh, same same thing in in translations. If you have a, a wide fan base, like Michael did, for example, um, mm -hmm. you can have fans who speak the foreign language, who are native speakers, who would love to translate your books. And if those fans are in the publishing industry themselves, for example, they already published newspapers or whatever, then that's an ideal situation. Uh, and that's what occurred with us. All of our translations are, are really people who were fans. Um, in our case in Germany, it was a gentleman who had a 
publishing company for newspapers. He published uh, newspapers through the hotels. He would have translated content and publish it through the hotels and then through also cruise ships. Well, you know, Corona came and that went out uh, the window. So he was able to focus on translations of LMEPN books, but he was a fan to start off with. And so uh, we met him in Frankfurt and he asked Mike, hey, how would you like to have your books translated? And of course we were like, yes, great. And then that, that relationship started. Um, so if you have a, a wide fan base and you want to do the heavy lifting yourself of dealing with individuals and getting, you know, looking for quality and everything, you could have one of your fans do it. Otherwise, you could try to find, um, there's different websites that provide uh, outsourcing of individuals who already translate content um, and mm -hmm. they translate technical or in some cases I've seen, I know we go to Upwork a lot. And by the way, anybody that I mentioned, we, we make it a point we don't have affiliates. So uh, we don't make any money in anything that I'm saying. It's just a matter of sharing knowledge and, and what's right. worked for us. So Upwork is a website where we found people who have helped us uh, with content and, and getting, uh, you know, some things done when it came to the translation. I, I, I speak fluent Spanish, but I'm not a native per se. And, and I wouldn't put out something to the public on something that I myself translated first pass. So I look to Upwork to find somebody from Venezuela who can look at something that I've done and edit it for me, which is usually what we do on the Spanish side. I'll give it the first pass and then give it to a native speaker who can tell me how bad my Spanish translation is. <laughs> um, so, so you could always do that. But unless you speak the language yourself, I really would rely, and it's more expensive, but I would rely on somebody who does it professionally. If you're not going to go through who one of your fans, uh, if you're going to hire somebody, you know, vet them out, make sure that you find mm. out about them and uh, have somebody who is preferably in the genre, who translates books in the genre already translate your books. And then that way um, you can have that done. Now the question, the second question is, and this is something that a lot of people forget, just because your book is translated, no matter how perfectly translated it is, doesn't mean that it's going to sell because you still have to do the marketing just like you did on your book in English. And so likewise, you need to find somebody who's going to help you in that component because you need to do it in, in another language. Now, 20 mm -hmm. books to 50K, I was on a panel and, I, and I'm sorry, I, I, I can't remember the gentleman's name. I, I'll try to remember it and, and do it as a follow. But he mentioned that for his uh, books, he actually um, does the interaction himself and he just Google translates. I, I wouldn't advocate that because, you know, sometimes there's a lot of things that are missed in uh, the Google translations, but he doesn't, when he communicates with his fans in foreign languages, you know, which is, he tells them I'm Google translating and then he, he works with them that way. But uh, for us, ideally it's worked out because our German um, uh, collaborator, he actually does the interaction in social media. So he's taken over that component and anybody else, we have somebody in France in the Netherlands. Uh, they were both, they are authors uh, in particular, Edouard Menima. He's a, a science fiction author and uh, Dutch well-known. And so he does the translation for us and he engages in the social media side. And likewise in Italy, uh, the person who does our Italian books was a fan of one of our series. We licensed the rights. He was a publishing company and now he's decided to focus exclusively on translations. And so he's joining us full time with translations in Italian, but he's also heading up the social media component because I think it's important to have it in the language of your fans so For that sure. you have that marketing base. That makes sense. Yeah. So then on, We've got rights, but then you also have agents, and they're two separate critters. And sometimes, I mean, contracts have been have been good and have been bad, but then agents likewise have been good and bad. So the agent agreement versus the contractual agreement to publish, what's the difference on that? And what should a person watch out for on an agent contract versus uh, then the publishing, which we've already been speaking about? Or the agent agreement is not a contract yeah, with the agreement yes. to work with an agent. Well, it, yeah, it is a contract unto itself, right? Yeah. But I'm, I'm just uh, being careful because I don't want to offend anybody. I think that the main thing to think about is just like the publishing contract. Just come down to the basics, right? What is this agent offering and for how long? And what are they asking for? One of the agreements that I saw that came our way even before I joined the company, Mike asked me to look at an agreement. And I was taken aback because the agreement this individual put forth, I think was for 15 years. I mean, it was some long term and uh, they stipulated that um, the payments go to them and that then they would account, you know, every whatever, I think it was every quarter. And so then I just started doing the math and I go, wait a minute, that means that you wouldn't see your money until a year after because they wait until the publisher and again, publishers, traditional publishers were like, 
half a year payments or something. And then this person would take another six months to pay you. And I thought, me personally, I just didn't think that was something that was beneficial to us. And so you mm-hmm. got to look out for the same basic things that you do in your regular agreement. How long are the, is the contract? What is the agent asking for and what rights are they asking for? And just think about it. Just this is your baby in common sense. If it doesn't sound right, right, it, you don't have to have a legal degree. If it just doesn't make any sense, then push back and say, you know, this doesn't make any sense. Why would I give you all of my one of the agreements was that uh, we would sign up and they would have rights to all of the books under LMBPN. And I'm like, <laughs> why? No, but you know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. Obviously, I see it from their side. Obviously, you know, the, the, the counter argument was like, well, you know, I don't want you to be shopping the books at the same time that I'm doing them. And obviously, that would be a conflict of interest and a breach of the contract. But OK, I could understand that for one series, maybe one book, but we're not going to give up the whole house. But again, you know, more power to them. It's not it's not that they're trying to cheat you. They're just trying to do the best for them. I just think on an unfair basis, but nonetheless, you know, likewise, yeah. you got to think about what's fair for you. So just, you know, look out for the time component, look out for what is it that they're asking for and how are you going to get your money? If, it, if it's going to go through the agent, which I've been told is industry standard that the money goes to the agent first, again, because the agents have been cheated out of their money, right? Um, you know, how, how quickly are you going to see your money and, and are you okay with that? And then lastly, of course, negotiating the rate. How much do they want versus how much you want to, you know, part with the percentage that you get? Yeah, I've had various terms, 15, 20, 25% for the agent. Now, what happens if an agent says, okay, I need, in order to represent you, you need to give me $5,000 up front? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's what they want. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, anybody can ask, right? So, um, but as a, as an author, I mean, because sometimes people get very desperate. You know, I've written this book. I really want to get out there. I'm willing to do anything. There you go. That's it. So, John, that's exactly it. So, you know, again, um, it, it, there's a lot of businesses out there, right? In in every aspect, um, you know, we twenty books to fifty k is a nonprofit uh, organization, and we make sure in in conjunction with uh, Craig Martell, who is really the implementer. He he was a military, and he's the type of guy that likes to lead. Uh, he likes to be in control, and so he loves you know controlling the 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 um, the meeting and the aspects of it. And he does a tremendous job of it. Uh, but we, you know the three of us struggle really hard because we want to make sure that it's a nonprofit. We don't want to make any money out of it. And we could make money out of it. And likewise, you know, with all due respect to companies that make money out of teaching and, and sharing knowledge, that's fine. Likewise, you know, with, with an agent, you know, if they want to make money up front and they want something, maybe because they've been burnt, I don't know. But, but you got to just think about it yourself. Are you that desperate? First of all, do you have the money? And, uh, you know, to give out $5,000. Most people that are starting out don't. Um, you know, $5,000 to me is, is a lot of money. And it's mm-hmm. not something that I'm going to give up for what? You know, what are you promising me? Are you promising me that I'm going to have 20000 in, you know, six months? That's a nice return. If they're promising you that, then you got to wonder, they, nobody would promise you that. But, you know, what are you going to get in exchange? And the answer is probably going to be, if, if it's somebody reputable, they don't know. Because all they're going to do is they're going to go knock on doors. I'm not minimizing it. Obviously, there's more to that. But what right. I'm saying is they can't promise you a return. So are you willing to give $5,000 for an unknown? And are you that desperate? Because uh, here's the thing. This is the way I would think about it. Um, agents provide a benefit. And, and obviously, they should be compensated for it. But if, but if you want to start off and you don't want to hand out $5,000 because you really don't know, why don't you try publishing it yourself? And if you don't want to go through the hassle or if you don't want to go through all the work that it takes, then talk to the agent and see, you know, what services they can provide because mm-hmm. maybe they can do the marketing for you. Maybe, And then then it's a different discussion because then you're paying for work, right? Then it's a right. work for hire type of thing. So, um, so I guess the short answer is I would think long and hard before paying somebody any money uh, when there's nothing promised in return. No, that makes sense. So like when Michael started with, with – um... His publishing, he went straight to KDP? Yes. So that way there, that bypasses that whole thing because there's no upfront money. It's just how well are you at marketing yourself to get your 
your book in front of somebody and to create that wave that results in more sales. And then the better you do with Amazon, then the better Amazon's going to do to put it in more eyeballs to grow it that way. Yes. And, you know, it's a matter of effort because if you think, and, and again, Mark, um, Mike had the benefit of having the marketing background and the digital background. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you don't have that background, um, that doesn't mean you can't do it. I believe KDP has a lot of resources. And, yeah. uh, you know, again, it's not this is not a commercial for KDP, but just know any Apple, if you want to publish through Apple, anybody you want to publish through has a lot of resources. Kobo has resources on, you know, doing things yourself and how to market yourself and how to. So if if you're willing to put in the work, you can do it yourself and publish it initially. Now, if, if afterwards or if, if you just say, you know, I just don't want to do it, I can't. And that's fine. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, I just want to focus on writing, then hire the people. And that's when I go back to that conversation about the agent if it's a marketing assistance they're going to give you if they actually are going to promote and do the different things upload your books and all of that stuff then that's a work for hire conversation that you can hire somebody to do all that but you can also do it yourself if you're willing to put in the time okay that that helps a lot so now what about illustration artists cover artists people that do illustrations for inside a book is it the same rules or are there any any other do's and don'ts with respect to uh, to that? Because I know you, from what Michael said, you've got he's like seven go-to artists that do your, your covers there because you have so many books that you put out there. Any particular advice or discussion on artists? So the conversation as it relates to artists is you're speaking to another artist, right? You're the artist who wrote the book, and now you're speaking to an artist who's going to create pictures. Both of you want intellectual property rights. Right. Mm-hmm. You both want to own your output. So most most likely the thing that you got to consider and in, in when you're speaking to you know somebody who's doing your cover art is who owns what. Understand what they're asking and uh, are you okay with it? So uh, it, you know if they come back and say, look, I'll I'll do the cover and everything, but I, I own everything. That means that if you happen to um, get an audio agreement for your book and the company wants to use the cover, they wouldn't come to you as the author. Uh, they would actually go to the cover creator because that person maintained the rights. So you just got to look out for these things. Uh, you know, who's maintaining what right? There's no right or wrong. Um, obviously, I have a particular view as from our standpoint, right, what we want to protect. But there's really no right or wrong. It's a matter of, you know, who you're working with, how good are they, and then what rights do they want to keep and to what extent. Um, other than that, it's usually a work for hire. And so it's an hourly rate. Um, so you don't have to worry about any anything about employment or anything like that. Um, what I suggest you do have is um, you might want to set some deadlines and milestones. So that if somebody, even if it's a, a $500 charge, I, I, me, myself would not pay somebody $500 up front. I would pay, you know, half or whatever. And then, you know, another third once they provide first drafts or whatever. And once I approve the first draft, you know, so I would think about it as milestones so that you make sure that you are going to get ultimately what you want and that you actually get a product that you're contracting for. Okay, good. And so I'm a writer. I'm an artist. I've moved forward. I was a little bit premature in my decision to sign up here on this thing here. So now I'm stuck. Is there any way to be able to, um, unstick from a bad deal? Wow. Uh, what a loaded question. First of yeah. all, is, is it really a bad deal? Is it really? I don't know. <laughs> There's never well, you find out you start because you're, <laughs> you're so desperate. You're so desperate, yeah. so I'll do anything. So you sign something and yeah. you find out when someone looks at it and says, would you just do? You're yeah. not going to see any money for five years. Yes. And they own all the rights and yeah. you can't do anything else with this until the five years is up. Yeah. That's so, so that's why, right? First, the first, the first thing that I got to deliver is remember, just remember Q tips. Oh, yeah. and look for those items. So now you, I didn't forgot. learn about you Q didn't, tips. You don't know about Q tips. Yeah, exactly. You went ahead I didn't and signed it. You until I signed my contract. And, and by the way, <laughs> and when you go through your contract, you're going to find all these things. Hey, this is how long it's the time. This is the quantity. This is the item. Uh, so, so think of it. Put yourself in the shoes of the other individual. It usually, again, depends on who the bad contract is with, right? Is it with a large publishing house? Is it with a small publishing company? You know, sometimes the publishing companies are small. Um, might want to get out of the contract for a value for an amount. So just think about what the other the other entity wants and start talking to them. 
and say, look, I think that 10 years is a long time. Um, you know, you've had the book for two years. It's not doing anything under your you know, wheelhouse. And I really want to put a lot of effort into marketing it. Would you consider giving me my rights back? That's what I would start off with. Um, the most likely answer would be probably no, right? Because, you know, for whatever reason. And then you start thinking about, okay, well, what would it be worth for you to give me my rights? And you never know. Maybe they might do a swap, by the way. Maybe the company, the publishing company might say, okay, we'll give it back to you, but we want 2% revenue, 5% revenue, I don't know, 8% of revenue. And initially you might think that's nuts, but a little bit is better than the whole bad deal that you have, right? So something you might consider, you know, getting the mm -hmm. rights back and just doing some time of exchange. So just bring it down to the negotiation level. What would it take for me to get my rights back? Um, and again, you know, one of the things at law school they taught us is you really want to stay away from the adversarial. You don't want to go in there thinking a lot of people think, okay, I have a lawyer and therefore I can sue and, and go after everybody. Well, okay, you could do that, but the lawyer will end up making a lot of money and the likelihood that you're going to get what you want is probably nil, uh, except you're going to get a lot of headaches. <laughs> and so, so rather than thinking of, you know, adversarial, me against them, think how can together, how can we work this out? I, in my opinion, think uh, this, this deal was not, uh, you know, to the benefit of the property. Don't even take it personally. Don't even say it wasn't a good deal for me. Just think for the book, the book is not doing well. Whatever reasons you're thinking that you want to get out of the deal. Um, and, and then negotiate, try to negotiate your way out of it. Um, mm -hmm. And again, depending on who you're negotiating with, you could end up negotiating with a big house, um, in, in which case you're really going to have to network and make sure you talk to the right people. But overall, in general, the message is try to negotiate your way out of the, the contract. Okay, well, that's good. And that's, that's actually a very sane advice, even though it might seem, no, I need a, I've been wronged. I Next. need to go and pull my sword out. And stab people to death. <laughs> uh, that's against the law, by the way. <laughs> you can't do that. All right. All right. So I had another question, too. And this personally happened with Writers of the Future, where, I mean, we've been going now for almost four decades with Writers of the Future. We started, Ellen Hubbard created it in 1983. The first book was published in 1985. There were no such things as ebooks then or audiobooks. Mm -hmm. And so by about volume 20 or so when that started happening, we weren't able to go back in and do the ebooks on the on the first books because we didn't have contractual rights for that or the audiobooks. And so only after that did we start adding it into the contract. Are there any particular suggestions or et cetera or something you can put that can go into a contract that can then account for new technology that doesn't today exist, but that could be a stumbling block in five years or 10 years if it's not included now? Yeah, so I didn't understand. So the, the question was that for writers of the future was in a contract and, and, and you couldn't take the audio because the owner of the contract had the rights or was it the other way around that, that you had licensed books, but you couldn't do the audio because the owners kept the right? Yeah, because it wasn't part of a contract. They didn't exist. We didn't even know about that as a thing that was being done and the eBooks so that we weren't able to do the ebook because they didn't exist there was, as even a concept when we first started Writers of the Future. The only thing was we had mass market, we had trade paperback, we had hardcover, but there was nothing else because there was no such thing as electronic. So now for future, for the future coming up with some new technology that might come up on how, you know, there's uh, book implants so mm -hmm. that you get a, a shot and mm -hmm. then you get, a, you get a book that comes up onto your retinas based on the new... Right. implants are put in your eyeballs so that you get that. So that's not in today's contracts. Right. And so the first question is who owns the rights to the, the words, the written words? That's the first question you ask, right? Who owns the rights? And second of all, in the contract that you make sure. Mm -hmm. And then second of all, you can stipulate. I saw a contract the other day where it was like they own it. Uh, they didn't say worldwide. They literally went into like out of space. You know, they own it for, I can't remember what the word was, which I thought, wow, they want rights in Mars, which you know what? I mean, I, it sounds ridiculous now, but who knows? In a couple of years, it might be applicable, right? Um, yes, there's, you can put wording in the contract. And again, it depends on who you is. Are you the rights buyer or are you the rights seller? Are you the author who's selling the books or are you the publishing company or agent or whomever who's buying the rights? You know, it depends on who we're talking about. But in general, agreements can have stipulations as to what 
remember item in Q-tips? Mm -hmm. What is it that you're licensing? What is it that you're selling? Are you selling the book? In which case then later on it becomes a question of, well, what did you mean by the book? Did you mean any variation of the book? Did you mean, you know, and that's when you go to court or that's where you start talking. Um, so as specific as you can, you can put in the contract, I'm giving you, I am the author. I'm giving you publishing the rights to my book in ebook and physical format only, period. In mm -hmm. that case, it's clear. There's no matter what new technology comes out, you've stipulated ebook. Now the question then becomes, what is an ebook, right? Right. Define it. Uh, so as much specificity as you can for the item, for the thing that you're contracting, the better. And if you want to leave it open so that you can say, you have rights of first refusal in any new technology, or I maintain rights, I as the author maintain the rights to negotiate any new technology that might come up, you can put that in the, in the agreement. Whether the other individual is going to go with it or not is a different question. Yeah, see, with Writers of the Future, the, uh, the writers and the artists, we, they maintain rights. We let them, we let them keep the rights yes, to their- you're the publisher. We're the publisher. Okay, right. So let them keep the rights to their story and to their art, which we just asked that, okay, we want to be able to be the first ones to publish it, then you're welcome to go out and have at it on reselling. And a lot of stories do get resold. Oh, and, and you, so you don't maintain exclusive rights during the life of the agreement? No, no, mm -hmm. we let the winners have the rights. That's one of the things that also makes us a little bit unique. So you're non-exclusive, right? You're basically, yeah. okay. We're just, we just asked that we're the first ones. Yeah, you want first right of refusal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In our case, once we say that they won, then we are, you know, the first rights. But we we make it very clear to them that they all the re they will be able to maintain the rights to their art, even when they submit something to the contest. They have they maintain the rights. We don't the rights don't tr transfer to us until we reject it back. Right. It's, it's just you know same for the artist, which is a bit unusual. You know that 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 happens where the artist still maintains his rights to everything. We don't, we don't have a problem with that at all. Right, that the right. Purpose of the, the purpose of the contest is to help the aspiring writer and artist. Right. It's not, it's not to make a ton of money off these guys. Yeah, you're not trying to trap anybody into anything. You're just making, you're putting a platform where they can be known and seen and, and right. Okay. Yeah, exactly. The reason why I wanted to uh, talk to you on this interview is, as we wrap, wrap up this interview is because this Rise of the Future it was that created that contest created by Owen Hubbard in 1983, and we've now, nearly four decades later, we've had over 700 people that we have uh, recognized. We just had, um, I mean, you've worked with Kevin Anderson and with um, you. We talked earlier about uh, Chris Rush and Dean Wesley Smith. Chris and Dean were both published in Volume One of the Writers of the Future series. A lot of today's popular writers got their start either winning the contest or getting their start like Rob Sawyer entered the contest and he was uh, he was he disqualified himself by taking one of the critiques he got from the first coordinating judge and turning it into a novel and selling it and so that disqualified him for the contest <laughs> yeah but um, Joe Black um, he was a finalist in, in the contest uh, Brandon Sanderson was a finalist an honorable mention so we've had a lot of people that, that got their start with the contest and that's the whole purpose of it is to provide that helping hand and that's why i wanted to be able to talk to both you and michael mm -hmm. because of the 20 books to 50k it's that same mentality of helping right. you know and michael said it's it's a non-profit there's i mean there's there's no intent to make a profit from that con from that uh, uh event that you held in las vegas right it's just to, to help here's some tips on what you guys can do to to, to be successful which is really good and that's a very strong similarity what we do with with writers of the future yes and we also don't take sponsorships because we don't want to be you know we allow industry to come in to share what whatever they're offering that's benefit to the authors but we don't we don't have sponsors um mm -hmm. for that particular reason because after all it is a non-profit um, yeah. organization yeah good yeah and that's why this podcast is, has gone on to do so well i mean when it first started three years ago you know it was had great guests, but then as it was, as it, one show I was doing particular on United Public Radio Network, the host couldn't believe that something would be like this. You know, <laughs> he's worked, I've worked with too many publishers and I know there's, there's some ulterior right. motive. So he spent a year challenging me. Yeah, but well, what about this? And what yeah. about this? And finally, after a year of being on his show, 
well, after one show, he said, okay, uh, sometime next week, give me a call. Yeah. So I called him. He said, I'd like to invite you on to, to syndicate you on, on to my network, oh. which is great. And then the, the first show that we aired on that was like, I think, 46,000 listeners. And the one that just aired yesterday was, he, he texted me this morning saying you know, the show that aired yesterday afternoon was 514,007 wow. listeners. Congratulations. And then when it goes into archive, the most recent show that uh, last week is uh, just over 500,000 listens on the archive. Wow. So it's just, it's, it's grown a lot, you know, just because we, we have great guests, like they're going to love having you, you know, to listen to on Thank this you. whole thing, Thank which you. is great. And your husband, but we have a lot of great guests on this stuff. And the whole purpose is to be able to lend a helping hand. And we've got all types of tips and advice and how to do this, how to do that. So I said, I've not touched this before with contracts. I'm so happy we've had a chance to uh, have this chat. So um, do you happen to have any books that you yourself have written and published on what we just talked about? No, no. Uh, so, but, you know, there is a book that I would recommend, and it's, um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you their name right now. And again, uh, just a reminder, we have no affiliate um, relationship whatsoever. It's just that it's really informational. And uh, it's called How Authors Sell Rights by Orna Ross and Helen Sedwick. And uh, Orna is part of the Alliance of Independent Authors. And so that if, if, if you're going to make any investment whatsoever, I would uh, put the investment in buying that book because it's really informative. It's very straightforward. It's not dry reading. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, it's 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 informational and it's not going to be so over anybody's head that they won't, you know, that they'll look at a contract and be afraid of it. On the contrary, I think after reading the book, you'll have a really strong basis under which you could always negotiate a contract uh, if you wanted to undertake it yourself. Okay, it's called... How Authors Sell Rice by Orna Rice. Orna Ross, R-O-S-S. -S. Oh, Ar Ar Orna Ross, yes. Yeah. And Helen Sedwick, I hope I'm pronouncing her last name right, is S as in Sam, E, D as in David, W, I, C as in Charlie K, Sedwick. Great. That's awesome. So um, in terms of then your publishing house, how do they find that? LMBPN, they can find it at uh, www lmbpn.com and that's L is for London N for Madrid B is Barcelona P as in Paris and N for New York lmbpn.com awesome. That's great. Well, thank you very much. This has been really, really fun, Judith, as I, as I know it would be because I've not touched on this stuff here. Well, John, I really appreciate the time and I appreciate the fact that uh, you're all taking the efforts uh, to sh just share knowledge. I think it makes the world a better place when we do. Thank you very much. I totally agree with that. Great. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We have also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere else via Amazon.com. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Judith. Thank you. Thank you, John.